You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 43. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Chris Sims. On today's show, we welcome Adam Spring to talk about remote sensing and digital archaeology and museums of the future. Let's get to it. All right, welcome back to Archaeotech. And today, um, well, first we'll welcome on the usual co-host, Chris Sims. Chris, how's it going? Hey, going well. I'm still in the frozen north uh, in <laughs> Pittsburgh. Uh, I guess by the time this podcast airs, I'll be back in Louisville, Kentucky, and about to embark on a cross-country road trip that is vaguely related to archaeology. I'll be picking up some CRM work in Arkansas, and then uh, might be doing a visit to New Mexico for Codify and all that. But uh, yeah, it's kind of the essence of shovel bumming to be on like a holiday road trip and just slip in a ten day of shovel testing while you're at it. You know? Yeah, why that's not? like that's like. That's like mega shovel bum right there. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just can't quit. I know, I know. So, all right. Um, well, we're bringing on today uh, somebody that I met back in, I think it was at the Orlando SAAs is when I first met Adam. And uh, and then we had some long chats at the Southeastern Archaeological Conference in uh, Georgia, Athens, Georgia, in the end of October. So um, we thought, you know, Adam's doing a lot of really cool stuff. So let's get him on an Archaeotech podcast episode. So Adam, how's it going? I'm doing well, and thank you for having me. Outstanding. So why don't you just tell our listeners um, a little bit about yourself and, and like where you're working, what you're doing right now, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. So so here's my story. Uh, Ten years ago, I picked up uh, a series of laser scanning-based technologies, and I've been working in the realm of digital archaeology stroke documentation ever since, and I'm currently a visiting lecturer at the University of Plymouth in the UK for digital cultures, humanities, and sciences, and I'm also working with Duke University at the moment on a project based around Trajan's Forum in Rome. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you got you live in, uh, with your wife, you guys live in uh, near Atlanta. Um, how do you do the, how often do you get back to the UK to do your visiting lecture stuff, or is that virtual? Um, it's a combination of the two. Mainly it's virtual at the moment, but I'll be going back over next year as well. So, but a lot of it is, and a lot of it is also implementing stuff on the actual courses as well. Like for instance, all of the photogrammetry, laser scanning, 3D imaging side started to work on around about 2008. So that's kind of in full swing there now. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm kind of like a, a mad professor in the background. Nice, nice. Now you mentioned visiting lecture in digital cultures, among other things. Um, what exactly, uh, like, what exactly do you mean? Like, what, what do students learn in, in, say, a digital cultures class? Is it all about recording the information digitally or is it more about presenting the information digitally or how do, how do you guys go about that so i mean i guess in terms of me and my slant on it there's a strong sociological element of it it's mm-hmm. like if, if you go to my website and look at my publications page that's remotely-interested.com you'll see that i had a recent publication in annals of the history of computing on retrospective computing and consumer-led development and the example i use there is the amiga computer and if you look at the story of the amiga It's one whereby Commodore, the company that bought the original startup, Amiga Corp, went bankrupt in 1994, and then the users took it over and have continued the development of new platforms. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the digital cultures element, I'm not just necessarily looking at it from, how shall I put it, a fieldwork point of view, but I'm also (laughs) looking at it from a sociological cultural point of view as well. 
So an anthropological take on it as well. So being self-referential self or meta, shall we say, as well. <laughs> well <laughs> Very cool. It's uh, it's great that you uh, you bring up the Amiga um, kind of right in the first three minutes of the podcast here. <laughs> I like that because because <laughs> I follow you on uh, Facebook as well, and you've been putting up a lot of cool stuff about the Amiga. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you were involved in, um, cause I haven't seen it yet, but there's a, is it a documentary or a movie about the Amiga that's actually airing on Hulu right now? How'd you get involved with that? So that's actually a very interesting story. So around about three years ago, when I was living in Montana, I decided to write a blog post and that blog post was on the Amiga computer. I basically, I had my Amiga 1200 and I was just looking at it and I was thinking, Hmm, I should write something about that. Anyway, three days later, it had 10,000 hits, and I ended up starting to talking, started to talk to a guy by the name of Zach Weddington, who was doing a Kickstarter documentary on the Amiga computer called Viva Amiga. And our relationship carried on from there, and it's, it's a real interesting one because this is a good time to actually talk to me about it because I actually interviewed Zach for my own podcast yesterday, and mm -hmm. we went through all of the processes that he's gone through in terms of crowdsourcing not just the money for the materials and the things needed to make the documentary work but he also ended up by accident leveraging the power of the community to actually help with the production of the documentary itself so if you go to hulu and you know if you have hulu and watch it you'll see there's a lot of um 3D graphics and stuff like that. That's all done by members of the community. A guy by the name of Paul Kitchen and also on the cinematography end, a guy by the name of Bill who lives out of New York, who's a professional cinematographer who got into his craft through the Amiga. Mm -hmm. So the story of the Amiga and the take on it from the Viva Amiga point of view is Zach got into what he does now in corporate film, although as you'll see from the documentary, it's very clear that he's gonna have a successful career in documentary making as well now. Uh, he got into that through the video toaster, which was on the Amiga 1200, first of all, and then up to the last line of the 4000. So in terms of the film itself, it's kind of showing you all of these people that from the US point of view, were doing crazy stuff in the background that most people don't even know about. And in the from the UK and Europe point of view, it was a massive success in the gaming industry. And, you know, not to give a spoiler away, but it actually ends on a high note of the sense that, okay, Commodore went bankrupt 1994, but there's still people using things like Amiga 1200s to create like chip to music and stuff like that. There's actually a convention that goes on in New York every year. So, and you've got people in there as well, like graphics artists talking about the computer, like it's an instrument. And again, kind of for me, the interesting thing about this journey, starting from that blog post mm -hmm. is the fact that I've now become good friends with a lot of the actual original developers as well. One of which is R.J. Michael, who plays a prominent role in the film, who's now the director of games at Google. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. I had actually seen a surf rock band called Manor Astra Man uh, use a dot matrix printer and an old Commodore computer to make music with it. And it, <laughs> it was just mind blowing. And they had like a, a Tesla coil blasting little lightning bolts all over the place. But it was really neat to see that happen. I mean, for me, it's interesting because uh, so Calvin Harris, for example, his first album was done with an Amiga 1200. So, you know, that was still being used until around about 2007. But from my other world, the world of 3D imaging, 3D documentation, design, whatever you want to call it, the point in there about um, whether it's a computer, whether it's a laser scanner, whether it's a camera, the fact that it's seen as an instrument 
and we each play that in a different way is a very important point. So coming back to what we were talking about previously on the digital cultures front, I think that's something in archaeology, particularly at this point in time where we're shifting into a clear phase of paperless, you know, mm. the paperless generation. There's no denying that anymore. It's going to happen. We need to remember that, that what we do is all part of the story. And if we are looking at preserving data, say, 10 years down the line, even five years down the line, we need to remember that because if you ignore that, then you're giving a skewed picture of what's going on. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. Um, and I was actually just having this conversation with a, with a, a colleague of mine in another industry that um, is not, uh, he's not an archaeologist. And he was saying, you know, we were talking about this project I'm working on right now. And he's like, it sounds like a lot of what you're recording is trash. And I was like, um, yeah, it's actually trash. <laughs> I, was like, that's, that's, I was like, that's actually what we record. It's the stuff people throw away and it just stays in the desert. And he's like, so what are you going to do in like 20 years? Because there's no more trash. Like we, 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 not only do we have like recycling and, and things like that, but people actually like start picking up their stuff. And, you know, especially around the sixties and seventies, there was uh, you know, the big movement to, you know um, you know, to really start watching in the environment and, and picking things up and not leaving stuff around like that. So there's that aspect of things, you know, as we move into digital, there's going to be left that we actually leave behind. But then we run into the same problem, and I think the Amiga um, really demonstrates this, is when history looks back on the Amiga, what's going to be the one point that comes out? Is, is it going to come out as a music creation machine, and nobody in 200 years is even going to know that it was used for other things? And I think about that all the time, even for like prehistoric projectile points. You know, We see something that clearly has some, some retouching on it or something like that. So, so it's already being used for a second purpose other than its original first purpose. But was that second purpose similar to the original first purpose? You know, we kind of assume that it was just used as another, you know, type of arrow or spear point um, or, or dart point or something like that. But maybe it wasn't. Maybe somebody just took off the sharp edges and handed it to their kid to play with. You know what I mean? Or 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 had some other value to it. But we, we really can't know. So it's interesting um, from the Amiga's perspective, you know, how... How is history going to look on that? How do you think history is going to look on that with this whole revival and and probably way more information about the Amiga out now than than when it was actually uh, you know debuted on the marketplace? I think to open that up a bit, I think, and I was talking to Zach about this in the interview that I've done with him and I'm editing to put put out probably in the next couple of weeks. So mm -hmm. you know we're doing this in December 2016, so it'll be out by January. Um, and I think the key thing to all of this is the byproduct of what these things actually create as well. So for example, I was at Autodesk University in November and a key thing from the CTO, Jeff Kowalski, was this whole idea of creative computing. So moving on from the idea of productive based computing of using things like AutoCAD and stuff like that to actually being able to fuel creativity. Mm -hmm. And if you look at something like the Amiga and you look at Zach's uh, documentary Viva Amiga, it clearly shows that it was designed to be a creative computing tool. So I think the interesting thing from the Amiga's point of view and its legacy relates to the fact that in a way it was ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. You know, having had the opportunity to get to know people like Dave Needle, who sadly passed away in February of 2016, everybody that was working on that team were family. Mm -hmm. They weren't just working with each other, they were heavily involved in the fabric of each other's lives. And that product, it's no mistake that 30 years later, it's still being talked about because that energy went into it. You know, there's, with a development process, the, for want of a better term, and I don't mean this in a dark way, the social engineering that goes on with it is key as well. You know, I'm not going to give any names, but 
I've seen products that are currently in the marketplace and having met parts of that team, I can see why it hasn't been a success based on the personalities in the room. So I think that's one of the Amiga's great legacies or the real story that can be told from it is Mm -hmm. what does it say about how people work together to develop something? And then what does it say about the cultural memory that it leaves? And again, you know, not to be self-promoting, but if you go to my website and you look at my retrospective computing and consumer-led development article, I very much talk about that. And also I look at it from an archaeological viewpoint in the sense, so the small box Amigas from the 500 to the 1200 actually have B-52 song titles on them because George R. Robbins loved the B-52s. There's a a strong material culture there as well. You crack open an Amiga 500, you will see Rock Lobster. (laughs) Yes. Amazing. (laughs) So I hope that kind of answers your question, but it can, you know, it can either be seen on a very specific level or material level of the Amiga itself or the cultural impact it had in the very subtle Mm -hmm. ways it impacted things or it can still, what it was trying to do can be seen today now that we've shifted to the wonderful time of distributed computing and all that that brings as opposed to terminal base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant example of kind of like modern digital archaeology, or rather not digital, but like modern archaeology. And, you know, you can see other analogies in that in other things that we study in archaeology, like Webby was talking about projectile points. But I see very similar things happening. I, I work on Maya sites every summer in Central America, and I see similar things where you'll have you know the classic maya architecture that's being used for a very specific purpose that has you know ritual ceremonial and administrative and you know uh, socio-political functions and then you get the collapse of the classic uh, maya period mm-hmm. and then groups come in afterwards and they start pulling apart the architecture and reusing it for totally different purposes but you still see references to the classic Maya in their iconography, in the kinds of artifacts that they're using and stuff like that. And so, you know, like, I'm not saying it's, it's you know, apples to apples, but uh, you kind of see similar things going on with the Amiga, where they're using the same architecture, but for different things. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep, 100%. Totally agree with you. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's that fundamental. Th- and I think this is a wonderful thing about archaeology, or, you know, anthropology in the US on a general level, is... It's all about people. And regardless of, you know, what time period it is, there's always an element to human nature that isn't going to change. And I think that's the interesting thing that a discipline like archaeology, particularly when you've gotten interested in in things like digital technologies, when it's always being hyped as new, is it gives you a perspective based on time. And I think that's very, very valuable. I mean, one of the things that I've had and one of the greatest compliments and I feel very lucky to have this person's friendship is the first laser scanner I ever picked up the Leica Geosystems HDS 3000 the system architect for that is now a very good friend of mine and he actually turned around and said to me one day you know the one thing that if I was looking at you to be part of a product development team that you would bring is perspective because you have an understanding of everything that's gone on to get to where the point we are now so you know if anybody's listening to this that's you know if you're a student or you know, you're kind of questioning your role within archaeology or anthropology. I think that's a real value that our discipline or our skill sets can actually give to something outside of the archaeological community. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, and I keep I keep going back to the you know the interpretation of all this stuff later on because it's I, I mean that's 
as a as a CRM archaeologist, you know, out here in the West, we we see sites all the time that are actually going to be destroyed, and and that's all over the country, right? We see sites that are under threat of imminent destruction. Otherwise, we wouldn't be there. And that, I'm really concerned with that sometimes because we spend a lot of time recording details of different things, and I often wonder if it's the right details. Because will we be able to um, will we be able to actually interpret the the use of this site? accurately and I don't think so I don't even think we get it close to right a lot of times um, and, and stuff like this just just really brings that home and, and real quick before we go to break here I'll just bring up you know the classic book um, I don't even remember when it was written but it was decades ago the Nasarema which is American spelled backwards and it's like interpreting a modern household's uh, trash and remains from from like a, a futuristic perspective trying to figure out what these things were and how they could have used them and stuff like that you know, it's total, uh, you know, uh, sort of theoretical fiction. Um, but the the fact remains that we can look back on this stuff and actually not really understand how it was used in, in reality, but we can kind of think we can. And that brings in, I mean, for me, that brings into question my entire job sometimes. Like, I, you know, we, we write these conclusions and interpretations on these site records and we're like, this is total BS. Like, I don't, I don't know if this, is true, if this is true at all. I can say it looks like this, but... But is it actually that? So, um, Chris, one more thing before we go to break. Go ahead. Yeah, that also reminds me of Bill Rathje's work on garbology. He's got that mm. brilliant book um, yeah. with uh, – I forget the co-author's name. It's on the tip of my tongue. But it's, it's just called Rubbish. It's the archaeology of basically modern garbage. And mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the main conclusions of that is that people report – like their self-reporting of their consumption and their resource use – is not what the material remains would suggest. And so, mm -hmm. you know, often people don't fully comprehend the broader impacts of their um, consumption and their resource use and, you know, the material that they're leaving. And that it, which reminds me of another important book called Entanglement by Ian Hodder that I think, you know, is, is much more pertinent to studying, you know, computers. And it's, it's like this thing that's tied into the geopolitical uh, nature of sourcing all of the materials to make a computer and then like the military industrial history of developing computers and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are two books that I would absolutely recommend, um, you know, any, anybody to read is Entanglement and Rubbish. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, we're going to go to break real quick. Uh, before we do so, let me just remind everybody that if you go to the show notes at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech forward slash 43 for this episode, uh, you'll find uh, Adam's blog, Adam's podcast, and um, the uh, the Amiga documentary on Hulu and anything else that we mentioned for the rest of this episode. So go there and check it out, and we'll be back in just a minute. I'm here with Michael Ashley from Codify.com, and we're going to talk about the new photo boards that they're developing and why we need them. Michael, what's important about a photo board, and why does someone have to really think about what they use in the field or in the lab? You know, Chris, it's interesting when we look at field photos, the way we've been taking them hasn't changed much in the past hundred years. Some people may use the back of a clipboard or paper sheet to provide a clean background or go to the trouble of using those photo boards with all the letters, but we really need our photos to do a lot. We need a new kind of photo board that can help us achieve consistent color, provide scale and help us measure things, especially if we're not collecting artifacts and we have just one chance to get it right. Developing a photo board that can do all these things, especially designed for digital photography, well, this is a challenge. It needs to be indestructible, weatherproof, fade-proof, lightweight, portable, and affordable. So what is Codify developing? And as it says on the website, what makes it magic? 
All right, in our lab and field testing, we started with a 10 by 12 inch board, big enough for most artifacts we encounter in the field, but not so big it would be a pain to carry. The board is magic because it has special markers on it that will produce a measurable model in 3D just from taking a few photos, and the object will be magically color balanced by using the board as a background. There's space on the bottom so we can superimpose a digital caption and company logo, plus a space for either physical barcodes or virtual ones to dramatically improve field and lab accessioning of artifacts and samples. So we've already received a lot of suggestions for other boards, so we're releasing a 4x6 inch pocket board in both Imperial and Metric. And we're psyched about our directional arrow, which has both metric and standard scales on it, and will white balance your photos. It's really cool. So when can people expect to get one of these photo boards, and where can they get them? All right, well, we're excited to say that we have a limited run in production right now, shipping just in time for holiday gifts. We want to get these in your hands and look forward to your feedback. Chris, what kind of deal can APN listeners get? All right, well, just head over to www.codify.com forward slash APN for a discount code that's valid only on that day and for other ongoing discount codes just for you. That's codifi.com forward slash APN. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. All right, we're back, and we were talking before the break about some... uh, uh, Chris mentioned the, uh, you know, the, the garbology project, you know, um, and things like that. It made me think, uh, especially, you know, what, what, not just archaeologists of the future, because I don't think, you know, we keep saying, oh, what's an archaeologist going to do in 50 years? I don't think there's any way we can actually know that. I think it's going to be almost 100% prehistoric, quite frankly, unless some um, disaster happens. We don't want to dig up an old town that was buried by a volcano or something, but, um, or a, uh, buried in a Trump riot, who knows. Um, but uh, anyway, it made me think about how we throw stuff away uh, just in the last few decades. You know, at least in the last decade, I think there's been um, uh, there's been a, a big push, not a big push, but like almost a cultural shift where where it feels like a lot of people, even though we have a lot of things, we have a lot of things that do multiple things. So me, myself, you know, I started like really purging a lot of stuff um, that I just don't want around me anymore. I don't really want knickknacks. I really don't want all these other little things. So we end up just either selling or throwing stuff away with the trash. But what happens is you start looking at garbage heaps. And uh, like if you were to look at a, a modern trash heap, uh, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't, um, it doesn't break down very fast. It doesn't decompose. So if you were to look at this in a hundred years, you could see in one section, you know, trash from multiple decades because people are throwing things out years after their use. Now that's no different than what we see here in the desert. You know, when, when I see a trash dump, out in the middle of the desert off of a road that's got cans and bottles and and other things that date from you know the teens and 20s on up to the 40s it usually means that you know grandpa died and they threw everything out of the garage you know that I mean that's often what i think that <laughs> personally that that means somebody died or somebody said screw this we're getting rid of all this stuff let's dump it in the desert because there's two decades worth of junk here um, that is an absolute trash dump episode right there it's not a single use um, you know, somebody had lunch or something like that. But um, right. so so it's not a new thing, but it's interesting to think of how our trash is going to look in, you know, 50 to 100 years. All right. So let's shift gears entirely to somebody else's trash. Um, the Romans have a lot of trash, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but it's all uh, a lot of it's stuff that we can find today and in, in their architecture and things like that. So, uh, Adam, why don't you tell us about the work you were doing with uh, Duke University on the Trajan's Forum in Rome, Italy? Maybe first a little bit of background on Trajan's Forum. Yeah, so really Trajan was the high point of the Roman Empire. He was the emperor that really made Rome. And the Basilica Olpia 
which is what we're mainly working on, is the materials were collected from all over the empire. So it was a very grand gesture. And the way I would describe the project now that we're approaching the point where, you know, 2017 is approaching at this time and it's the display is going to be going out to Rome next year is it's dealing with the tangibles and the intangibles of using digital tools in archaeology. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, with the weapons freeze that we're working on, we're doing a lot of stuff based around 3D imaging to 3D printing, um, you know, working with meshes. Uh, uh, The interesting thing has actually been, really interesting thing has been along the digital sculpting line because I've had 10 years of working with 3D technologies of various kinds, but digital sculpting is very much, it's an art form, you know, and Mm -hmm. it has all of the subtle nuances and pitfalls of actual real sculpting as well. So to be able to work with people that have been very gifted in that area, but also as well, say for instance, January, 2016, we're going to be getting somebody from ZBrush to come in and give a workshop. That's been very, very interesting to see how that can be used with, you know, photo to 3D based meshes and then build out from them like my colleague Julia Liu has done and you know we'll be doing a presentation on this at the CAAs next year in Atlanta mm-hmm. has been it's been very very interesting and I think from a practical point of view looking at the end deliverable being in a museum you come across this this wonderful uh, problem of digital infrastructure shall we say so say for instance you can come out with a fantastical product that can be you know either 3d projected wonderful displays and all of this but the reality of the situation is a museum staff isn't necessarily going to have either the skill sets or the time to maintain all this stuff Mm -hmm. so the actual end displays that we're creating are totally geared towards being a long-term thing they're geared towards being very tangible and having maybe the digital infrastructure of, you know, uploading models to a system to get them 3D printed or stuff like that at the back end. So the front end is low maintenance and you haven't got this this sad scenario of, you know, a VR headset just looking sort of sad in the corner because the machine has broken down in some way, shape or form and they can't figure out to get it running again. So the sustainability element to it has been very, very interesting to me. I'm sure. And I've got some questions on that. But first, just so our, our listeners can have a, a way to place this in time, what is the, what is the time period of, of the site that you're working on? Uh, so it's, it's a multi-period site. And really, if you look at it, it's anything from, you know, the end part of the BC straight on through to, you know, the present day, because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's still obviously a very active yeah. space. And in terms of the materials we're working with, like, for instance, in the medieval period, a lot of the building was like robbed and destroyed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's a multi-period site. It's probably the, the best way to describe it. So with that being the case, you know, and, and being concerned with, um, uh, I mean, you're in Rome. So, you know, being concerned with a, a, a digital display of some sort that has some sustainability, I imagine part of that conversation has to include current data collection methods like while you guys are sitting there think about okay how are we going to display this where you know they're not going to do an operating system update in two years and destroy the entire destroy the entire display um you know something like that a lot of that it seems to me is based also on how you actually collect the data what formats you collect the data in so they're usable later on in the future with file formats and and operating systems and 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 hardware that we haven't even invented yet um are you guys also, uh, is anybody making recommendations to, to current field researchers about 
how they can do that to make um, museum uh, curators' lives easier in the future? Yep, and that is basically something that we are discussing at the moment and moving forward with in the first part of 2017. So that is something we are definitely considering along with things like 3D viewers and stuff like that as well. And trying, you know, the key thing to this is accessibility. And again, like you were saying about the, the file format side of things, it's, you know, obviously... OBJ is seen as a standard, for example, but mm -hmm. there's other things as well that aren't. One thing I've observed actually in the museum space is one format that hasn't necessarily been addressed that much is E57, which okay. is a standard open source 3D format that's been created for that reason. So we're kind of looking at all, all of this essentially, but you know, I don't want to say too much about that at the moment because <laughs> we're literally doing that at the moment, but I, I have a very clear viewpoint and opinion about it that, you know, we can tantalizingly talk about off mic, but <laughs> I don't want to talk about it right now. So yeah, that's, so yeah. It, well, it's an ever changing space. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's the and that's the big challenge, you know. When I it, it's interesting because we were we were in Italy um, a few months ago and went to the archaeology museum in Naples, and uh, I mean it's a fantastic museum from just a, a sheer size point of view. But I've talked about this museum before, and it really kind of made me think about some stuff. I mean, this is considered like a world class museum on archaeology, and and I'd say a large part of the collection, if not most of it, is all from Pompeii, and um, it's just. Uh, you know, that stuff in there, I mean, if that, if society were to crumble tomorrow, like, I don't know if you've seen the show on, also on Hulu, Last Man on Earth, the kind of thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the thought behind it is everybody's gone, but it doesn't seem like the world was destroyed. They're just all dead and there's no bodies laying around. So it's just like, there's a handful of people left. So looking at it from that point of view, that museum would be just fine. It would collect dust, but it would be just fine because there's, there's, it's really just displays of stuff. Now they have one corner of this museum, one tiny little room um, that has some some interesting digital things going on. They had some some interactive books that you could kind of wave your hand over and flip through some some ancient texts, and they had some other um, interactive like wall display type of things. But it was all very uh, it. I don't think it was done very well. It was a little clunky. I appreciated that they were trying to do it. Don't get me wrong, but I yeah. feel like it wasn't ready for prime time. You know what I mean? Like the, it, there wasn't even that many people in there. And I think it's because I think it's just because it, it was, it just wasn't working very well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, cause like the first or second pod, you know, it is, it all blurs when you blurs into one when you're doing <laughs> podcasts sometimes. Right. But my interview, my interview with Howard Rheingold, Howard Rheingold wrote a book called NetSmart. And in that, he talks about a term called infotension, and I, I use it a little bit differently, but I think that's one of the problems we, and it's not just in archaeology, it's it's in several different sectors, including, say, for instance, like the architectural engineering and construction space, like AEC, mm -hmm. is we kind of sometimes, instead of trying to act like we know where we need to go, is to start with, okay, we don't know where we need to go, but by not knowing, we can kind of figure it out. And I think with stuff like museum displays and, you know, anything, I think, on a sort of site, there's an element you need to have that confidence in order to rein it in. You need to fit, you need to say, OK, I don't necessarily know where this needs to go, but it's how do we figure out the processes to get to where we need to be, mm -hmm. if, if that makes sense. You know, I don't want to sound too hairy fairy and sort of hippie there, <laughs> but it's sort of, you know, uh, I've been obviously I've been working in this space for the last 10 years. And although some things have changed we could almost have the same conversation about certain things that we were having 10 years ago mm -hmm. today. 
and we kind of need to start addressing that issue. You know, right. if you if you listen to the the podcast that I did with Georgia Tech, we talk about libraries and that. And the point that I made, and I think it's a relevant one to bring up here, is in one respect, the problem you have with digital viewers, 3D viewers, and everything else is a library traditionally has an established set of rules. But at this point in time, there are no rules for that kind of thing. You know, if you look at 3D viewers, for example, one of the big problems you've got with, you know, 3D, 3D uh, files is the fact that there's, it's very difficult to get the metadata attached with it. You know, metadata is not easy. It's not like a, a, a photograph whereby you have a, an EXIF, mm -hmm. uh, you know, file that will tell you the information to the sensor. And I think for libraries and things like that, and even museums or anything where you're cataloging stuff, that can be very difficult because it's it's unknown ground, but it's also a ground that maybe you have to talk with a computer scientist about or somebody within a user community. And coming back to the Amiga thing as well, I think that's a thing that I'm finding very interesting at the moment is mm -hmm. this phenomena of user communities maybe, maybe having answers where in the past other ent entities say like universities or certain companies within the private sector have it. You know, and I think the makerspace is also a good example of that as well, is there's a lot of innovations going on at a casual level that could maybe be applied to, you know, examples like you were saying of addressing issues with archiving information digitally in museums or other spaces like libraries or information repositories. That right. was the word I was looking for. So, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it'll also be really interesting to see, you know, as archaeologists start to study uh, you know, the contemporary archaeology of this or even archaeologists from the future studying this from a past perspective, I think it'll be interesting to look at the labor and the economy that goes into these sorts of things because there is a lot of kind of an informal economy, as you said, Adam, like the maker spaces and stuff. It's it's using workplaces in a non-traditional sense and using labor and economy in kind of non-traditional senses. And it's not necessarily subverting capitalism, but it's working almost outside it's just kind of on the periphery of it um so it'll be neat to kind of i don't know see like a political ecology of this from an anthropological perspective mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's it's interesting because we're definitely we're definitely going through a paradigm shift at the moment it's just it's going to be interesting for me to see or you know to have an opinion on whether it ends up being a glorious revolution or the change gets done and we're not actually having similar conversations 10 years down the line that's what I think at the moment. It's, it's a very interesting time, personally. Well, this this brings up a lot of uh, a lot of questions for me, um, <laughs> especially museums, because I've always been uh, I, I've always had uh, kind of conflicting opinions about museums. On on the one hand, and I mentioned this on another podcast. On the one hand, museums can sometimes um, I, I think can sometimes foster an attitude amongst the public of the elitism of archaeologists and um, and the fact that. Look at look at all the stuff we have because we we highlight things that way, including that museum in, in Naples. It's just it's all artifacts. It's artifacts laid about in, behind glass um, glass uh, you know pieces of glass in displays that you can't touch, you can't do anything with, and it makes people think. In my mind, hey, if I find one of these and I happen to be out on a site, I'm just going to go ahead and keep it. Otherwise, it's going to be locked away in some museum somewhere. Um, so it could increase that sort of that sort of attitude. So the the move towards digital things to me actually kind of helps that um, because I see a future uh, and, and I'm using my own frame of context of CRM archaeology out here 
already we don't collect almost anything in the field when we do pedestrian survey out here in the west um now back east they still collect because they're they're digging the stuff up they're removing it from its context anyway so they may as well keep it right but that being said out here in the west we don't collect anything and we um uh we we sketch a, we sketch artifacts we we draw artifacts we 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 uh we photograph artifacts and things like that but i think there's going to be a, a relatively near future where we just stick the artifact into a thing and we take a 3D scan of it, okay? So eventually, at some point, we're going to have 3D scans of sites and artifacts and, you know, photogrammetry and all these things. Then what do we do with that stuff? Um, so I guess the bigger question is, and we might have to finish this one after the break, is what does a museum of the future even look like? Because not only are we starting to record literally everything digitally, including images and things like that, but... Um, there's also a big push, especially for a lot of the big old established European museums to actually start returning some of this stuff that was collected at the beginning of the 20th century and the end of the 19th century by less than ethical means to return these things to their home countries and things like that. So as museums start to lose some of their stuff and it gets returned to the, to the cultures that actually, you know, they belong to, um, what do you think a museum of the future looks like, Adam? Besides, is it even a physical place you can go to? Or is it more like something that's completely virtually online that you access with your Oculus Rift glasses while sitting in your recliner in your underwear? Well, I think one of the big themes that comes out of that is ownership. Yeah. And that is, you know, ownership of objects, but also ownership of digital assets as well. And I think there's going to be, you know, I think the few, you're never going to get the tangible and the intangible always complement one another. You know, so if you mm -hmm. look at something, you know, a 3D print is a, t is a prime example. You can have a pre uh, 3D print, for example, of, you know, part of the weapons trees of Trajan Forum on screen. Mm -hmm. But when you print it out, people get it. You know, it's it, in some respects, it's almost like watching five-year-olds, you know, sort of <laughs> like, oh, look, this is wonderful, blah, blah, blah. So I think the answer in the long term is to get rid of the physical is to undersell the digital or the intangible and vice versa. I think there's a relationship between the two, but I think the big problem on the human end, and I don't think necessarily the technology is going to be an issue, is going to be the question of ownership. And like you were saying, if you have, um, for want of a better term, established elites with a certain perspective on things, shifting that is one of the hardest things to do. So I think ownership is going to be the key thing. But to answer your question more directly, I think you, you're never going to get rid of the physical museum. But I think in terms of the digital, you know, if you look at sites, for example, like Color, where you're able to do maps and have panoramas of sites and be able to walk around them, it gives you a better idea of the experiential. I mean, even, even with Trajan's Forum, for example, the museum that we're going to have stuff housed in, Google did a street view of it. And that's been incredibly helpful for us in terms nice. of thinking about how to plot out the interior of the exhibit and stuff like that. So there's too much of a relationship between the two that if the physical can still exist, it's always going to be there. It's mm -hmm. just in terms of the dissemination. Obviously, at this point in time, everything is looking as though it's geared towards handheld devices like smartphones and like you were saying, VR. But I also think as well in terms of projection and hologram that may be there as well i mean if you look at a recent startup that came out of mit called lumi l-u-m-i-i -I, mm -hmm. they're already working on actually printing out holograms on a standard printer so you print out the color base map and then you print out a depth map over the top using see-through film and then you can have a basic sort of walk around of the hologram now you know it's not as sophisticated as say something like zebra imaging but it mm -hmm. still gives you an added sense of 
depth or an added sense of place. Right. And I think that's going to be the relationship between the museum and whatever format you're using to convey that museum. Well, that that leads into a whole other series of questions and sort of thought experiments and um, uh, related to 3D printing and imaging and things like that. So let's get into that in the last segment of the podcast. We'll be back in a second. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. All right, we're back for our final segment, and this is a pretty exciting discussion, I think, because I, I love I love talking about. Um, I, everybody thinks archaeology is something of the past, right? It is, but but really, we have to in twenty sixteen, almost twenty seventeen, we have to be thinking about archaeology of the future, not only. Not only what we're leaving behind, like we mentioned in the first segment, but but how we're going to present the things that we are discovering and the ideas that we're discovering, because um, it's not all just about artifacts anymore. Artifacts tell a story, and and presenting archaeology is about telling the story about a people, right? And so, and, and especially as as like um, you know the groups that you know around the world, what you know, no matter who it is, whether it's Native Americans or you know, whether it's the Greeks trying to get stuff out of the, uh, the British Museum that was taken 100 years ago or 200 years ago, whatever the, whatever the time frame may be. Um, you know, these people, you know, it's about telling their story and, and, and their, um, uh, their version of history, I guess, you know, based on the stuff that we have. So it seems like uh, as we get better, you know, Adam was just talking about being able to do sort of rudimentary holograms on a standard 3D printer. Um, you know, our standard printer, standard printer, standard yeah. printer. Yeah. Being able to do that kind of stuff. Well, where does this all lead? You know, let's, let's extrapolate this out really far into the future and maybe not that far into the future because things progress pretty fast. I, I feel like in this, in this day and age. Um, so, you know, I, I know Chris and I have seen, um, the new HBO series Westworld, which is based on an older, um, version of the same story. And Adam, you've seen the older one. Um, so I mean, this is for anybody that doesn't know Westworld is basically, I don't know, it takes place something like, uh, I have to imagine it's at least a hundred years into the future. Um, just judging by their own history of the, of the park and things like that. But it's basically this massive park that simulates, um, you know, the wild West in like the 1800s America. And there's, um, basically animatronic, um, hosts, they call it that are part of the characters of the whole thing. And people use their vacation time to go there and interact. Um, they interact with these things and they can do anything, mind you, with these hosts. They're fully functional um, and they have minds of their own, but they're, own, they're working with their, within their own narrative. They have a script. But that, that aside, you know, that all goes kind of crazy as a, as a show would. But I'm more interested in the fact that this is a replica of the 1800s, right? Um, I'm not sure exactly what year it is. I don't think they ever say, but it's pretty early. It's pr probably mid-1800s if I had to guess, but um, it's a replica of the 1800s. So if you take that out into an archaeological setting, you could make literally anything that you want, and you could use replica 3D artifacts, repli replicated um, 
replicated everything to have people actually walk around the streets of Pompeii or, and not just in like a sort of weird second life sort of way, but um, in an actual way, walking around Pompeii. Now, that brings up a whole uh, ton of questions. You know, what about the ethics of this? What about what if we recreated Native American villages here? Uh, what if we recreated Cahokia? You know, and and modern uh, modern uh, ethnic descendants just have a problem with people going in and doing things with the Cahokian citizens that probably aren't very ethical. You know what I mean? Like in a totally Westworld style. So, do you think that's even? possible adam that we could even be talking about this sort of thing i mean I, <laughs> I i don't know how far in the future we'd have to get to actually get to westworld but um you know as we move into more digital representations of people's culture uh and we have things like oculus rift and i don't think it's very long before we're going to have like full body immersion pressure suits where you can go into a 3d world and actually feel things happening to you like that then we deal with you know dealing with other people's cultures and things like that. I mean, I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Or am I just like, is it too early in the morning and I haven't had enough coffee? No, I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, I guess it's, it's immersion versus authenticity. And you know what? There's a great article that I can't remember the name of that's actually referenced in uh, the book chapter that I co-authored with Karadic Peters. And you can go over to my, if you're in, if anybody's interested in it, they can go over to my website, find the book chapter and figure out which one it is in the bibliography. <laughs> but it's by, but it's by Bruno Latour and a guy by the name of, I think his last name's Adam Lowe. And um, basically, Bruno Latour, obviously famous sociologist in France and they actually looked at uh, a painting and they actually scanned the painting uh, but they did it with a 3D scanner so they could even get the brush marks and everything else and they put the replica into the museum and the museum go or the gallery rather and the gallery goers could not tell the difference between the two mm -hmm. so I think the big thing with that is, yes, I do think we will reach a point where it may not be Westworld, but in some way, shape or form, <laughs> we will be, we will be able to, you know, emulate or recreate environments in a way where, you know, the human senses will not be able to distinguish them from the real thing in whatever form that may be. But I think the big thing is going to be authenticity, you know, because there's always this that element of the past as a foreign country. So I guess. The debate then almost falls into, you know, that notion of the uncanny valley. So if you look at something like a Pixar movie, it can't look too real because the human brain kind of starts going a bit haywire and it starts looking a bit weird from, from the human senses point of view. And I think kind of taking that idea a little bit further is do we then have to put a footnote and say this is how we think it is? You know, this, this and this may not be the most authentic, these could be the inaccuracies, because then you're starting to create a narrative that if you don't say that, that can actually give a false impression of that time, because there's always an element to it that's, you know, you're never going to get something 100% accurate. You mm -hmm. know, if it's not, even in living record, it's different. It's difficult. You know, it's like, for instance, if you look at the wealth of stuff on YouTube at the moment, that's um, very nostalgia fueled about, you know, retro computing and gaming from the 80s and 90s, as somebody that's lived it, my perception of stuff that's now being romanticized from the UK point of view, I remember it slightly differently. And I even find myself at times when I'm watching this stuff, sort of pulling myself back and thinking, well, no, I didn't think that at that time when I was like 13 or 14 years old. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So there's a question of perspective there that I think we're going to need to address. But I think, yeah, I think we will totally. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's all, it's all interesting from Westworld to, um, there's another book series that I read, you know, probably 20 years ago called the, uh, uh, 
what was it? Uh, Tad Williams. Um, I think this is the author's name. It's like Outlander or something like that. Not the current like Outlander thing that's all the rage. Oh, but, yeah. You know, uh, it was another – basically the deal was – it was Westworld-esque, except you didn't actually go physically to somewhere. It was all completely virtual, but the virtual reality was so good that it was indistinguishable from actual reality. Um, and everybody did everything within that world. Like, if you went shopping for, you know, whatever, which didn't really make any sense to me. You go clothes shopping in this virtual world. What, are you going to wear those virtual clothes in the virtual world? Because nobody's leaving their houses, but that's another story. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, thinking about these these futuristic collections and not even necessarily futuristic because like we've said um you know there are uh representations of actual artifacts and things like that in museums today even from the virtual stuff that i saw in the in the naples museum to possibly 3d printed artifacts and other stuff um and as we get better at that as we get better at 3d printed artifacts now like for example a, a museum would never sell uh, Native American projectile points, uh, like actual Native American projectile points in the gift shop, right? But if they're selling replicas that are so indistinguishable from the original, uh, how how are how do we think those cultures are going to be able to handle that? Because they're so indistinguishable from the original that that you you just you just simply can't tell. So when people start using these artifacts or doing things to these artifacts that are not in a respectful sort of way, like we would treat the original. I'm wondering, you know, um, even if the, the native populations don't really have a problem with that, that's starting to change some wiring in people's brains. And then they see something like that, quote unquote, out in the wild and and maybe don't have the, the respect for it that they should. Do you think that's something that could be happening as we move into to digital um, digital displays and digital collections? And if so, how do we fix it? Yeah, and I think the Native American one's a good example in the sense of obviously, you know, the perception of photography for mm-hmm. example right you know and it, and again it ties in with this notion of um ownership but i guess in a way as well there could be potentially seen as theft mm-hmm. you know like the theft of a culture and it's i don't think there's any clear answer to it to be honest with you because in one respect some and you know something like an arrow point or anything like that is a good example because if you make it look fake so people know that it's not the real thing it's going to look naff Mm-hmm. You know, but if you do make it real, again, do you have to say, give some disclaimer with it, whether it's right. a piece of paper in a, you know, it, this is a bad example, but whether it's a piece of paper in a box or even some sort of, you know, say like made in China thing on, on, on the actual bottom of it itself, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you need to yeah. give some indication that it's not, it's not real in the sense of the way people would think it's real. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, it's interesting to bring that up because I, I worked on a project out in um, uh, Virginia a while back, and it was a project where we were on this lake and we actually had a boat that we we took around and we were doing testing along the shores of this lake. And the place where we got gas um, was a little convenience store, and they had a basket of basically projectile points with a. Um, like little corner notched projectile points are actually really well done. A lot of these things you see have like two flakes taken off and then like a, the, the ears are, are dr- the notches are drilled in like with a Dremel or something. That's <laughs> like really badly yeah. done, like you're saying, but these were actually pretty good. Somebody with some skill made these things. And then they drilled a small hole down through the, um, the concave base of the thing and put in a little post and attached a keychain. Well, I bought one of these for like $3 ripped off the keychain. So if you looked at the base, you could see the little copper um, post kind of like flat with the thing, but you could see it. And that thing got passed around and dropped into people's shovel tests and their, and their, and their screens when they weren't looking and was identified as an artifact 
by nearly every single person on the crew because you simply couldn't tell <laughs> that it wasn't actually an artifact. And um, and I and you, I guess that I'm just agreeing with you is that you, you you have to tread that fine line of of not making it look crazy and, and unreal, but also not making it look too real. Because like you said, with the photographs, plenty of cultures out there won't even allow you to take photographs of them because, you know, they have the thought that, you know, part of their soul is being absorbed by the photograph and, uh, and they'll never get that back. Um, I can't imagine what they would think about an entire set of 3d printed artifacts in a recreation of their ancestors village that people are walking through with their children and, and dropping their, you know, hot dog relish on and, and doing whatever they're doing um, because we're nasty Americans. So uh, yeah, I really don't know where I'm going with this, but well, no, but I think I think it's an interesting point that in a way you kind of you need to think about lowest common denominator. Yeah, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but you, you <laughs> from from that point of view, you really do have to think about that. It's like okay, you know, me as an archaeologist or me as a responsible or caring person mm-hmm. would not want to overstep this boundary. But what about the other point of view that somebody that even if they overstep it, they don't necessarily care. You know, and I don't mean that in a harsh way, but you do have, that is kind of the consideration with stuff like, <laughs> with stuff like that, really, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, we've got about five minutes left in, uh, in this podcast. So, um, you know, we were, we were, we had on our notes here to talk about, uh, consumer trends and shaping digital archeology. span Do you have anything more to say on that, that you really wanted to bring up that we haven't, uh, that we haven't brought up? Um, yeah, I mean, in a way, I think we have to be mindful. So I, I met someone a while ago, um, and obviously I, well, I still know them, and they described the heritage sector as a price-sensitive market. And I've ne- I'd never heard it described that way before, but that was somebody that, you know, had a, their, their famous tagline was uh, having a, a qualification from the Sloan Business School at MIT. And I think in terms of, in terms of archaeology, I think we have the most interesting examples to work with from any digital technologies point of view because we are dealing with the most difficult thing to do, which is trying to replicate or represent reality, which is not easy. Mm-hmm. You know, nature is not easy to work with. Um, but I think the other point of view is, well, we need to be mindful, and this isn't me getting on a soapbox, but I'll use the example of photogrammetry, for example. Photogrammetry has been popularized by softwares like Agisoft's Photoscan and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But what we see emerging, if we look over the offense in other disciplines, say, for instance, there's um, photogrammetric record. There's a great article that came out last year by Clive Fraser, where he describes a two-tier system now being in place of softwares like Agisoft's Photoscan or 123D Catch or Photo and stuff like that. And then the higher end precision stuff of things like Atom Tech's 3DM Analyst and Australis, that you know are used on a either a more preci- more precise or accurate level or in metrology fields and stuff like that. And I think the one thing we need to be mindful of using those examples is when we can't afford more expensive packages or more precise or more accurate packages, and you know we have to work at a certain level. We I don't know. We have to be careful about thinking that. So I've heard, like, and the reason why I say this is I've heard several times this year, Agisoft being used as photogrammetry. You know, photogrammetry is not one package. It's the concept of taking metrically accurate mm-hmm. data from images. You know, so I think from, in terms of archaeology, technology right. and consumer trends, I think the thing we need to be mindful of is not getting seduced by either the marketing or the price point of something. 
So I think that would that would be something that as a long term user and being very fortunate to work with high end technologies, that's something we we need to think about a bit more in terms of long term data preservation. I think personally, right? Do you do you think there's uh, uh, any companies out there or, or even any anthropologists maybe pushing for this? Um, to have uh, maybe an anthropologist on staff to consider the cultural ramifications of what some of these companies are doing, like for example, maybe not directly Oculus because they're kind of a they're more of a hardware maker than a than a um, software maker. But um, I mean, maybe even like uh, on the staff of say Sony for PlayStation and Microsoft for Xbox and things like that, um, yeah, because of the things that they're they're starting to come out with that have to do with more realistic representations of things. Um, have you heard of anybody really, you know, in the gaming community like that, hiring people that are concerned with that, or are they just push it on? Um, you know what? I haven't, but there, you know, there are individuals I can ex- give from companies, say like Google, for instance, that have their own um, heritage institute and stuff like that. But again, it's it's. A, I think the big problem we've got at the moment is communication. You know, particularly between, and I and I think also as well, there's a shifting face of we're also at a point where institutions and corporations have shifted roles in terms of what they provide. Right. You know, it's like, for instance, if you look at a company like Autodesk, a lot of uh, universities and things like that are now very much dependent on their softwares and their solutions and things like that, you know, but there isn't necessarily uh, an educational responsibility that comes from, and I'm not singling out Autodesk, but I'm just using it as an example because it's the first one that comes to my head of, you know, they don't necessarily have the responsibility to teach people, but there's clearly a responsibility there. And when you developed a pro- when you develop a product, like I was saying earlier, you have a cultural memory and understanding of the subtle nuances of a project of a product that we don't necessarily do as users. So mm-hmm. you know, so that's what I might say. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, and um, I think uh, you know we might have Adam on again in the future. Um, if you don't mind, and um, and continue talking about this stuff because I feel like we could go uh, literally all day on on uh, sort of riffing on these same topics. But in the meantime, check out the show notes. Check out uh, some of the stuff that Adam's done. We've got a lot of good stuff in the show notes for you to look at. And uh, check out the Remotely Interested podcast and blog as well. And uh, we'll be back next time. Have a, have a, if you're listening to this on time, then have a happy new year and uh, welcome to the age of Donald Trump. Oh, God. <laughs> So at this point in time, I think we could do another podcast on that subject. So we will leave it to 2017. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. 
has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.